Okay, we're going to be in Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 25. I will read them and then we'll go for it. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be, that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly, which is hilarious to me. Did you guys hear that? I've written to you. Look, at this is just my little word of exhortation, and I've written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released if he arrives soon, I will, come to, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send, send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Uh, today we come to the end of this book of Hebrew, this little exhortation <laughs> that is actually an incredibly complex piece of um, counsel, pastoral wisdom, and theological work. It's a deep theological work, um, but for him it's a little exhortation. <clears throat> and we've been seeing in this book, it was written for a purpose. I think the, the key to, this, to understanding this book, this letter, is to keep it in its context. He's writing, he's writing to people, Christians, who are struggling. Um, who are struggling, um, I think it's safe to say, struggling more than what we, we could imagine. Although we are struggling too, but nothing compared to the Greco-Roman society as we, as we understand it. And he's struggling to give these Christians hope and to give them something mentally to make them tough so that they can make it, so that they can hang on and endure. They're tempted because they're human, and I'm sure we can all understand this. They're tempted to fall back. They're tempted to compromise. They're tempted to stay quiet when they should speak up. They're tempted to fall back when they should be moving forward. And so throughout this entire book, he keeps saying things like, hold fast, stay strong, endure, don't give up, hold the line, keep going. And then he keeps giving us different angles and different reasons as to why. Here's why you can hold on. Here's what Christianity offers you to stay strong and to stay tough. <clears throat> and on and on it goes. And in many different cultures, and in many different places in history of Christianity, um, this applies even today. I think of the, the arguably some of the, lar- the largest part of Christianity being in China today. China, South Korea today. <clears throat> Africa. Christianity is growing leaps and bounds in those places. And it's interesting um, because throughout history, when you... When, we have, when we've surveyed writings of Christians living in one of these pockets, either where Christianity is declining or advancing, those Christians usually can't imagine Christianity, if it's flourishing, ever going away. And yet, in places like this, where Christianity is diminishing, 
the writings of those people think, oh, it's the world is over. It's, Christianity is so interesting. It's so di- It's really different in how it grows than any other religion. Truly, uh, every other, uh, all of the other major world faiths started an epicenter and they grow out from there. But they retain their culture. They retain the language, they retain um, uh, cultural norms and things like that. Christianity is more of something that like jumps. It started out in Jerusalem, for example. It jumped to Antioch and it began to die out in Jerusalem while it began to flourish in Antioch. Then it jumped into Greece. Then it jumped into Rome, into Europe, to Britain, and then it jumped to Africa. And yet those places were hot and yet they began to cool, and yet began to grow in other places until Christianity began to leap and grow and progressively grow to being the largest, most influential religion in in human history. And it's doing that same thing today. Today, in India, the church of the great missionary William Carey is now, uh, uh, or excuse me, in England, is now a, a mosque. And yet, in, it, because of the seeds he planted in India, 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 the the, um, the cradle of the of the world religions of the ancient faith, um, we're now there. There's now about six six to eight million Christians there. Unheard of just ten years ago, just fifteen years ago. It's 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 just incredible. So take heart. Where things might be tough here, and we might feel in our little Seattle bubble, oh. We're losing the culture wars or however you want to say it. No, no. Christianity continues to flourish. The kingdom of God, more importantly, continues to flourish. And, it's, uh, and one of the reasons is because of letters like this. Real letters that know that Christians really struggle. We're humans. We, wanna, we want to, we feel the pressure. We're flawed. And so there's letters written that are timeless like this to us. And at every angle, this pastor, whoever he is, there's a big debate on that, but this, he's a pastor nonetheless. He's saying, here's how you can hang on. Here's what Christianity gives you to endure. Here's how you don't have to be discouraged. And today in this last section, he gives them one more thing. There's still something that they need in order to survive spiritually. According to this passage, it's absolutely essential to have Leadership. Uh, Or to put it another way, it's essential for you to be a leader and you to be under leaders. There's a structure of leadership that the church is demanded to have, not only in this scripture, but all throughout the Bible. He says you need guides. You need leaders in a community structure. And this whole chapter has been about community and there's certainly a, and now he's getting into the structure of this community and it's all about leadership. Now, this is a really touchy subject because of the abuse of leadership and the balance of leadership. There's been a lot of abuse in this area and because of abuse, people usually, generally speaking, swing to two extremes. We are in the culture of extremes. You're either this or you're that, right? Um, On the one hand, because of a lack of trust, there is what I guess I could call self-leadership. I'm just going to lead myself. The less leadership, the better. Thank you very much. Don't treat me like I'm stupid. I can make my own decisions. Don't tell me what to do. I don't want too much leadership. The less government, the better. The less leadership, the better. 
I don't trust any leader to let, to let them have too much access into my life. I trust myself because I'm the only one that can take care of myself. On the other hand, there's what we can call over-leadership. This is seeking human beings as guides in unhealthy ways. Too much, we give, we give structures of authority too much power and too much leadership. We make, people, we make people and systems bigger than what they are, and leaders tend to make themselves bigger than they should be. We, you know, the, the, the old adage is certainly true that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. <clears throat> it's true. The feel that it all rides on them or on this system, it's all up to us that, both, that actually both leaders and their constituents, um, it's a system that we all that we all actually feed into. Some people don't feel confident enough to make any decisions on themselves, so they put, it, they put it up to other people or other systems. That's why we pay taxes, we might say. So they make those decisions, and on and on the, the, it goes. And yet, despite the abuses of power and the inherent con- uh, complications that are really there in the whole thing, this passage in the Bible calls for a healthy balance of leadership in people's lives so that we can thrive. In the middle of all this, it still calls for something. Look what it says in verse 17. He says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Why? Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Really interesting passage. Put very simply, he's saying that you need someone in your life with authority. That's just the simple. You need someone in your life with authority. Everyone needs to be under some kind of authority. So according to this passage, authority is a good thing. It's good. Now let me qualify this. Authoritarianism, not good. Okay? But authority is good. Authoritarianism, in two senses, is a bad thing. Let me break it down. One is what we could call a relational, relational authoritarianism, for example, is when you look for fulfillment, value, validation in some human relationship. You're looking for someone who will come in and fix everything that's wrong in your life. Marriages get sucked into this really easy. I'm, everything's riding on you. It's your job to make me happy. You're supposed to fulfill me. You're the one that's supposed to make me feel secure and safe and on and on happy and on and on and on it goes. You're looking for someone who will make everything all right again. And if you look to any other human being, whether it's a parent, a child, a spouse, a pastor, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, if you look to any other human being and say, because this person loves me, I've got meaning in my life. Because this person loves me, I know I'm worth something. I'm significant I can live, I can breathe, I belong to the human race. This person gives me definition. If you look at any person like that, you've given that person, I'll just say straight up, you've given that person way too much power in your life. And they've become your God. And you will destroy them and they will destroy you. Okay? Professionals call this codependence or enmeshment. And with that much power, you'll ruin each other. You're an emotional slave at that point. The dependency, the obsession, the problems that are all going on are tremendous in that 
relational structure. So that's relational authoritarianism, but there's also political and religious authoritarianism. Humans have a tendency to attach ourselves to some extremely charismatic leader. That one person's going to fix it, or one system ideology or political system's going to fix it all. And then people t- tend to abdicate or cede to that person, or, or, or that person takes, or a combo of the two, but that person or that system ends up having way too much power over every single part of our lives. And there are some famous, things that, famous leaders that we can think of, demagogues that we can think of, and that, you know, we, I mean, our minds always go to Hitler. We always think to ourselves, how did that guy have that much power to do that, to do the things that he did? Unrestrained power to do the things that he did people are still I mean you know I have Apple TV and there's so many documentaries about Hitler and World War II and his leadership and how he rose to power I mean it's just endless people just debating how it all went down but then you've got religious demagogues like David Koresh Jim Jones and people that led their followers to die to death they were that influential Those are extreme, obviously, examples, but there are thousands of people doing the same things in less extreme cases, politically and religiously, all the time. Uh, Justin and Thomas, Justin Thomas and I went to lunch last week and we were just discussing this whole thing. And he was telling me about a book that he was reading of a a person that actually interviewed uh, people that went through religious cults and actually did case studies with people, various people that went through religious cults. And one of the the things that this person found that, that was interesting is that people that are susceptible to religious cults are actually normal people. They came, there was a wide spectrum from all sorts of different places of life. There were people that were wealthy, there were people that were poor. There were people that were educated, people that were not so educated. And we tend to think, oh, all those people are uneducated, whatever. No, this, this case studies came out that basically verified that there are people from all different walks of life that are susceptible to religious authoritarianism or cult-like types of things. The one thing that they all had in common was they all went through some major crisis in their life that made them go, where is God in all this? And right at that moment, Jim Jones or David Koresh stepped in and said, let me tell you, you wanna know where God is in all this? They struck at right the most vulnerable moment. And at that point, it didn't matter how how religious or unreligious or wealthy or unwealthy or educated or uneducated, it didn't matter, they they went right, right for it. So there's something we've learned from all of these case studies, and that is that self-leadership and over-leadership, believe it or not, actually fuel one another. That's what Justin and I were talking about. They actually, they actually are part of a system that they're not opposed. They, they stimulate each other. People who got, <clears throat> for example, some people who got, this is from these case studies that we were talking about, some people who got too little leadership growing up. Their parents neglected them or their parents gave them no boundaries or oversights, didn't have any rules for them. Very often people who had to be their own leaders, they rush into over-leadership because they don't want the pressure of it anymore. I grew up being my own parent. I lost my childhood. I just want someone else to make some decisions for me. I'm tired of the pressure. 
They're so they're, they, they're susceptible. Or if you have a victim of overleadership, uh, I think a lot of um, a lot of the younger generation leaving what we could call modern evangelicalism today, that trend of, of a, a mass exodus of the younger generation, a lot of what they say, what they've said is they were grown, they grew up in a very strict, uh, legalistic, um, overbearing church type of a structure. Maybe you grew up in an authoritarian home or you're part of an authoritarian church or some cultural situation or institution and they've overreacted to that and said, I, don't, I, want, I want the freedom of making my own decisions. I'm going I'm to break some rules. I'm going to rebel a little bit from what I know. It feels good. The average American person says, in fact, t- today, the average American person says, I'm spiritual, but I just don't want to go to church. I'm very spiritual. I just don't want anything that's institutionalized, that has rules, that watches over me, that keeps tabs on me, that keeps me accountable, that makes decisions for me. That's what I don't want. That's usually what the culture is bulking at, not necessarily the spiritual side of things. And very often it's because they've been abused by authoritarian or abusive churches, but because of that they swing, they they balk against any kind of leadership. I'm never going to let that happen again. And that's just as much of a, of a disaster. But when you look at the Bible and what the Bible says who, lead, who our leaders should be, you see this astonishing balance rather than going from either of these two camps or either of these two extremes. You see this balance. There's this amazing equilibrium in our passage today. We can see four things. One, we're going to see, we're going to see who, leader, who our leaders are. We're going to see who we are in response. First, we're going, to look, we're going to learn about ourselves. We're going to see who our leaders should be. We're going to see what our leaders should do. And we're going to see how this should make any difference in our world today. First, look, look at who we are according to this passage. The metaphor uses shepherding to describe leadership. This is in verse 20 if you're following along. He says, now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good for doing his will. Okay, before we explore that further, think of this what implies about us. If leaders are shepherds, if Jesus is a shepherd, then we are sheep. And this, okay, this is an insult from the Bible, but it's a healthy insult well-meaning insult from the Bible. Have you ever stopped to ponder and let sink in what the Bible is describing? It's hard for us as um, people who, unless you've grown up on a farm, uh, those of us that live in the city, we think of sheep as like, you know, downy, cuddly little creatures that are cute and docile. We certainly don't think of it as an insult to be compared to something that cute. But even the smallest, and I mean that because I didn't have much time, but even the smallest amount of research will tell you that sheep are actually horrible creatures. Here's a quote from a sheep farmer that I found online. Here we go. Sheep are not all that clean and cuddly creatures they appear to be at a distance, he says. On the contrary, they are dirty, subject to nasty pests, and need to be regularly dipped in strong chemicals in order to rid them of lice, ticks, and worms. And in addition to that, they are extremely unintelligent and obstinate creatures. Now, I hate to describe the people of God as dirty or lousy or stupid, 
But I need you to know that's the force of this image. And the reason I, I think this is healthy for us is because sometimes somebody asked when I was um, teaching this class, one of the teenagers asked me, what is the first thing to become smart? And I didn't know what to say. But in hindsight, I thought to myself, I think the first step to becoming smart is to realize that you're not that smart. Honestly. Because if you think you're smart, think of this. If you think you're smart, then you're looking at the world like this and there's no other possibilities. But if you can admit, I don't know that much, then all of a sudden you're open to learning. You're open to reading more. You're open to hearing other people's opinions and uh, research experiences and those types of things. You open yourself up to more possibilities. But if you think you've, you're the master of a subject, you, you actually are shutting yourself off from other information. The first thing, that uh, this is what the Bible's doing. He's saying, humble yourself. If you want to be led, first realize that you need a leader. You need to be led. That's the point. Sheep, what he's saying is, in other words, sheep will die without a shepherd. That's what he's saying. Sheep do not survive without a human overseer. Other animals are different. You can set other animals in the wild and they'll find their way back home. Right? Sheep will not. Other domestic animals, when you put them in the wild, I've heard several stories of dogs that have been lost in the wild and they somehow, over miles, of, uh, you know, over miles and through the woods and all these things, they find themselves back at their owner's house sometimes. So the first thing we learn from taking a whole survey on this subject from Scripture is that we are sheep, which means we cannot survive. That's the point of the metaphor. He's saying you cannot survive without a shepherd, without shepherds, without leadership. It's not saying this is an accessory or something that you might want to consider. It's saying this is life or death. We need shepherds. We are sheep. We'll die without shepherds. So when the Bible calls us sheep, it's a, it's a, it's a well-meaning insult. It's saying you need, you need leadership or you're, you're going to go astray. So number one, we learn who we are. We need it. We need leadership. We're lost without it. The second thing we learn is what is who our leaders should be. Who's qualified to do this? And I think the answer might be surprising. Who's qualified to be a leader in this room? Looking at this theme as a whole in the Bible, there are three answers. Who should be shepherds? First, ready? Who of you should be leaders? First, our peers in grace. Other people who've experienced the grace of God, listen, who are no smarter, no more mature, and no better than you are to be shepherds and to be leaders. Did you know that? According to the Bible, if you do a survey, that's who our leaders should be. If you notice verse 22, at the very end of this book, the, Hebrew, the, the writer to the Hebrews, who's written this enormous, like we said, theological treatise, this big work, extremely sophisticated, he calls this a word of exhortation. That's what, he, that's what he labels this letter. It's a word of exhortation. The word is periklesis in the Greek, and it means to give direction, to come alongside with direction and with guidance. It's, it's a shepherding word. 
It's for someone who, a shepherd guides the sheep to where there's, shoes the sheep this way. Don't go over there. Go over here. No, no, the food, that's poison. Come eat the food over here. No, let me get that lice off. It's a guide. And he's saying, I have been trying to shepherd you with this entire letter. That's what he's saying. What we've been going through the past, how long have we been in Hebrews now? Eight million years or something? He's saying, this is me trying to pastor you, to come alongside you, to shepherd you. And even though you can't tell in the English, this is the very same word he uses, by the way, in chapter 3, verse 13, to describe what we're supposed to be doing to each other. Look at, I don't think we have it on there, but I'll read it to you. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. He says, encourage one another. That's the word parakaleo. It's a verb. That's the verb form of parakalesis. Parakaleo. Encourage one another daily. Why? Just because it's fun and because we should be encouraging people and because that's vogue and we should, hey, bring kindness back? I mean, sure, but there's a specific reason. He says, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, before I get into that, notice he doesn't say, this letter writer, I'm your authority. I am your authority. I'm this great theologian. I'm this great minister. Let me be the one who guides you. Follow me, me alone. I'll show you where to go. I'm the only one that can do it. I'm the only one who knows how to fix it. He doesn't say that. He says, you should be leading each other. You should be encouraging one another. Shepherd one another. What does that mean? It means that there should, now here, here we go. Are you guys ready for this? This is not, fun in our culture but it's what we need it means that there should be some other people who are your peers other people who've experienced the grace of God that you are boldly letting into your life your life together is so intense notice the word daily in chapter 3 daily in other words that means frequent interaction that's what that means that they can see sins that you tend to miss because you've been deceived. It's what's called the deceitfulness of sin. It's a, in other words, you have blind spots. You don't see your life 2020. And that's why we are, that's the beauty of community, true community, not once a week type of stuff, but true community where we are living and sharing life together where someone can say, why'd you spend your money on that? I don't like the way you're talking to your wife. Hey, let me help you raise your kids. Intimate access. Not everyone, but there should be some people that you are allowing to guide you that are no smarter than you. Notice, their quali- notice the qualifications. The qualifications needed for this to be that kind of a person, the bare qualifications, is simply that that person is not you. And that you're not them. You do, we do that for each other. We should be leading one another. We don't have to be ordained or officially. We care about each other, so we influence one another. We guide each other because we care. When we don't show up for church in a month or something, we should, it's okay to expect a phone call. Are you okay? Are you all right? How can I help? What's happening? 
conversely, if you, if you have a need, you should not feel ashamed or embarrassed to bring it to the church or bring it to friends within the church and say, hey, I need some help. I need help. I need, I, I'm going to miss my... I'm going to miss my electric bill this month, or I need help with groceries, or man, this project, or my, my landlord's going to kick me out. I, need, I don't know what to do. I need, you know, my marriage is hurting. I, I need, we need help with this. Whatever that might be, we should know, hey, this is who we are. We're, here, we're in it to win it with each other. And that's the only thing that's going to give us strength. This is what he's saying, what you need to survive this horrible world that we're in, this broken world that we're in. How are we going to make it through a pandemic? How are we going to make it through school and, and schooling our children? How are we going to Whatever we're facing today, how are we going to make it in Seattle as Christians? How are we going to do that? One answer for this morning, together. That's how we're going to do it, together. And that's what this passage is asking you to live. And notice that this is not too, I want to notice the balance of this. It's not too individualistic and it's not authoritarian either because you're their shepherd too. Okay? We're to do this for each other. You're into their life the way they're into your life. So it's not either. It's not self-leadership, but it's not completely depending on other people either and putting yourself completely under someone's authority blindly. And it's realizing that we're all flawed, broken, but beautiful people. So the first answer to who are these shepherds is your peers in grace. The second answer is Jesus himself. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. I want to say that again. That's a really powerful title. Jesus is the, the great shepherd We're all shepherding each other, but Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And here's the great balance of this passage. Jesus Christ looks at you and looks at me, and he says, hey, let your mom be your mom. Let your brother be your brother. Let your spouse be your spouse. Let your boyfriend be your boyfriend and your girlfriend your girlfriend. Let let your pastor be your pastor, but don't make any of those people your savior. I am the great shepherd. Let your president be the president. Let your congressman be the congressman. Let your, and on and on it goes. But don't make any of those things or those systems or people your savior. That's the great balance of this passage and of the Bible. Don't make any of them the main thing in your life. Don't revolve your life around them completely. If there's any other person that you look to and say, because of them, I have great meaning in my life, you are a slave, my friends. If, there's, if you give that power to anyone else, you are a slave. You have, made them, you have made them the great shepherd of your life, and you're going to destroy them, and they're going to destroy you. Jesus, at this passage, it says, I and I alone am the great shepherd. You see how this gives us balance politically, societally, ecumenically in our church? It's prioritizing. The only way that we are going to stay away from leadership abuse on the one hand or complete lack of accountability on the other hand is to give Jesus Christ the ultimate place in our life as the great shepherd of our souls. Not any other uh, leader, system, 
Government, you can swap it in for anything. Only Jesus deserves that spot. And there's the balance. Otherwise, you're going to be either too afraid or too needy of leadership. That's how you're going to, you're going to be afraid of it or too needy for it. And only when you're, only when you're doing one-on-one shepherding, while at the same time knowing that Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, then and only then is it safe to do verse 17, to obey your leaders and submit to them. You can't do that. You, it'll fall apart. You can't, you can't trust me and submit to me that way unless Jesus is first the great shepherd of your soul. Otherwise, it'll, it will destroy each other. You have to find a set of Christian leaders you know you can trust and become a, become a part of that church. You have to join the flock. You have to become a committed member of a church. I really don't see any other way of fulfilling verse 17 unless you become a committed member of a church, of a community. That doesn't meet just to hang out and every once in a while talk about Jesus but that meets to, for the purpose of praising him and processing our lives through him with people that we trust, people who have earned the right to wound us. We need that. Wives need people to call that can say, man, I'm struggling with my husband right now, knowing that they're not gonna take a side, but they're gonna listen and offer support. And that the secret's not going to get out to the world. Husbands need to be able to go to a fellow man and say, gosh, I'm just really, ha- I'm struggling right now with this addiction or this problem or this thing or, you know, I just got fired and I, or whatever it might be. And people that are going to just be there and hold it and not judge. So we're called to have friends and we're called to be good friends. Okay, I'm going to combine the last two points together. We've seen that we are sheep. We've seen who we are. We're sheep. We've seen who our leaders are, each other and Jesus, right? See where we're going with this? Now, let's look at what leaders should do and, it's a, and see how it's different than other leadership. What should a leader do? Look at verse 21. Or I, let's back up to verse 20 again and we'll go through 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and glory forever. Amen. That's what shepherds do. Shepherds tell you how to live. They guide you. Or they, they shoo you. Shoo, not there, over here. Don't go there, go over here. That's what shepherds do. Shepherds tell sheep where to go. Go that way, how you should live. And I've heard a lot of people say about Christianity, um, I, know it's, I know it's real because I've seen, I've seen true change. I've seen people change. Changed lives are the proof for Christianity. But here's, you know, I know a, I know a criminal who's become honest through Jesus I've seen drug addicts and alcoholics who've, who've become sober through Jesus. I've seen people starting, start living the way they ought to because of Jesus. And okay, that's, well, that may be true, but keep in mind, did you know that every major religion and every moral community in the world can produce change in people's lives? Did you know that? That's the power of community in general. Every moral structured community that has a shepherd 
leadership and has rules and guides, they know how to shape people. They know how to change habits. They can, they can take a dishonest person and make them honest. They can take addicted people and give them self-control. They can produce lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, compared the kinds of lives that Jesus wants you to live and Moses wants us to live and Confucius wants us to live and Buddha and Muhammad. C.S. Lewis compares all of that and Lewis, Lewis points out that they're not that different. They're not that different. If you look at all the great faiths, the ancient faiths of the world that have leadership and structure, you're gonna see that they're basically trying to get you to love your family, be sexually pure, don't be materialistic, care about the poor, share what you have, be unselfish, be a servant, love one another, forgive people, tell the truth. All the major religions have those creeds, have those desires. They're, they're all there. All the shepherds say, here's what you should do, and so does Christianity. And you might be thinking, well, okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> Is there a difference between Christianity and other religions then? Oh, yes. Big, big difference. Why do and the question is, why do Christians live the way that they do? Not how do Christians live the way that they do. What makes the Bible and Christianity incredibly different is it answers the question why do we live the way we do and this is utterly different than the way other shepherding goes in any other religious community the dynamic in which our shepherd Jesus gets gets us to live utterly utterly different it's crucial for us to see this and you can see it in the passage look at verse 20 now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep. Did you notice how awkward that sentence is? It's not just bad grammar in the English. It's actually really awkward in the Greek too. Brought back from the dead. Um, usually when the Bible talks about the resurrection, it says Jesus is raised from the dead. That makes more sense grammatically, doesn't it? He's raised from the dead. But here it says God brought him back from death. Like on a journey, like he went somewhere and got brought back from death. And this is the idea, this would have been a cue to Hebrew people, to Jewish people. This would have been a deliberate hint to the idea of an exile. Exile. This is deliberately written to make you think that. How is the resurrection being brought back from exile? Exile is one of the Bible's main ways to describe what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with mankind. When you put yourself ahead of God, when you put yourself ahead of others, ahead of the community, when you sin, when you violate the community, what do you do? What happens to you? You get ejected from that community. You go to jail. What's, that's you being excluded for the safety of yourself and for the safety of community. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they decide to be their own, their, they decide to break away from God. What happens? They're exiled. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. What happens? He loses his home. He's exiled. When Jacob deceived his father and deceived Esau, he had to leave. He had to flee. He was exiled. 
But the, and of course, the, one of the biggest examples in the Bible is that of Israel and Egypt. They were exiled into Egypt as slaves from their homeland. They went into bondage, eventually, and eventually God brought them back. How? Through the death of a lamb. The story of Exodus 12, super mysterious, actually. We, it's not mysterious for us because we know about Jesus, but for them, super mysterious. How is the death of a lamb going to bring us back out of out of exile he says i want you to kill a lamb i want you to eat it with your families i want you to smear the think how weird this is (laughs) moses shows up the leader that's going to take them out here's leadership how are you going to get it what's your plan to get us out of here to get us out of the most gripping social economic slavery that there is how are you going to get us out of this how are you going to break this here's what we do everyone grab a lamb i want you to slaughter it then i want you to eat it First, it's going to live with you first as your pet. Then you're going to slaughter it, and you're going to eat it as a family. Gather your kids around. It's going to be super fun. Name it. Slaughter it. Eat it. And then I want you to, as a family uh, you know, craft project, we're going to smear the blood above, above all the mantles and the doorposts of your home. And that's how it's going to go. And then at this certain point, this death angel is going to come. And those that have blood, it'll pass over. A death angel is going to come. For the disciples, and then, you know, I always think to myself, fast forward from that event to the disciples having Passover meal with Jesus. And he's recounting that story. How crazy would that have been? In that Passover meal, there's the host, and he leads them through this meal that's basically retelling the Exodus story. Something that they were to tell and tell because it points to a greater exodus, a greater bringing back from exile. And here's Jesus. He blesses the bread. There's always bread at every Passover meal. He blesses the wine. There's always, but none of the text, I'm not saying it wasn't there, but it's interesting that none of the text mention, in all four gospels, none of them mention the most significant food on that table. They don't mention the lamb. For the disciples, this must have been bizarre. And Jesus stood up and he made it clear. What Jesus was saying that night was, yes, there are shepherds like Moses and the Pharisees and your religious leaders. There are lots of shepherds, even good ones. And they're all over the world and they tell you how to live. But Jesus is basically saying in that moment, I am the only shepherd that's going to become the lamb for you. Why should we follow you? All the other shepherds tell us how we should live. I'm the one that's actually going to take your place. I'm going to become a sheep, a lamb. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. What's going to happen to me tomorrow on the cross, Jesus would have said, is the ultimate exile on the cross. Remember, Jesus was taken outside the city Outside the community, he was exiled on the cross. And not only was he exiled from Jerusalem, he was exiled from heaven. Because what did he say on the cross? He didn't say, Jerusalem, why did you forsake me? Humanity, why did you forsake me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was exiled from the presence of God. Therefore, resurrection is a bringing back to Eden. Do you, know, you understand that? That's what resurrection... We think resurrection unfortunately, we have such a shallow idea of Easter and resurrection. We think it means, oh, Jesus conquered death. It does mean that and more. It means a, it means a, it means a, a buttoning up of the entire redemptive story. 
It's a return to the Garden of Eden that we lost. Let me put it to you this way. What is death? In the, we think of death as a cease of existence, right? That's what we think in our culture. What's the first mention of death tell you in the Bible tell you about death? Do they actually die the way we think of it? No. What happens to them when they, he said, you eat that fruit, the day you eat of it, you will die. What happened the day they ate of it? They didn't die, they were exiled. That's why to the Jewish faith, they thought of death when they were exiled to Babylon, when they lost the promised land and they, were, they had to go to Babylon again because of their disobedience. You know what they, they referred to them? You can, all the uh, post-biblical writings, like Philo, the, the pseudo-apocrypha, all the things that we, that we find written, they thought of themselves as exiled people, as the living dead. That's what they thought of themselves. And even when they got back into the promised land under the Roman government, they thought of themselves as being dead in their own land. Because exile for them equaled death. Therefore, resurrection for them wasn't an individualistic thing where I go to heaven after I die. It's more than that. It was all of humanity being brought back to God's presence, to Eden. Where Revelation says, behold, God, Revelation 21, behold, God is dwelling with his people again. Genesis You've got the people of, and you've got Sabbath day rest, humanity dwelling with God on the Sabbath day, walking with him in the cool of the garden, and we blow it, and we're separated. The end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it says, behold, God is dwelling with his people again. You see, it's a whole comprehensive story, and that is resurrection. And it came through his death, Now think what this means. Religion says, if I try really hard to live, to live right, God will accept me. But because of this, the gospel says, because the incredible sacrifice of Jesus, because you're already accepted, now we can live. You see the difference? It's resurrection. Because someone died, I can live. I can, the ultimate resurrection is coming. It's been inaugurated and guaranteed and it's coming, but I can draw from it and live good, I can live resurrection life now in this community. Religion says you better, you better live right or God will reject you. The gospel says at infinite cost to himself, God now never re- will never reject you. Doesn't that make you want to live right? Which shepherding dynamic is at the heart of your life? because it'll shape this community. What view of God do you have? Here's how you can know. When people don't live right around you, what do you think about them? Here's a little litmus test for you of what shepherd is the shepherd of your heart. When people sin or don't do right or do things you disagree with, what do you, how do you think of those people? That will tell you your view of God. When circumstances don't go right, I've lived a good life and I've been faithful and I've been given a bad hand and God keeps, when am I gonna get what I deserve? That'll tell you. Or when you don't perform right, when you fail, do you beat yourself up? Do you try to make it right through hurting yourself, through shaming yourself? My dear friends, who is the shepherd of your heart? Is he the shepherd of grace and love, acceptance, no matter what? Has he earned the right to wound you? Then you're gonna be that way to others. You're gonna be that way to your friends. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you that you are the great shepherd of our souls. And I pray, Lord, that today you would help us to repent of the things, the systems, and the people that we have made into the great shepherd. For some of us, it's our husbands, it's our wives. We've gotten to thinking that they're the ones responsible for our fulfillment and happiness. For some, it's the boss at work or their leadership or lack of it. For some, it's a political policy of some sort or whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent of those things and return to you as the great shepherd of our souls.